Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Welcome back to 007 by 7 the podcast where we are investigating the James Bond films seven minutes at a time, or today, four minutes and 11 seconds at a time. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan. And today, on our final episode, we're looking at minutes 105 to 109, which begin with Bond closing the heavy bank vault-like door and ends with the final credits. And in between, Bond searches for Honey finds her manacled to an incline with rising water, rescues her, and they both make their way through panicking workers and heaps of black smoke to a motorboat escaping into the Blue Caribbean where they run out of fuel and are eventually found in a romantic clinch by Felix and his Marines. And today we're joined by friend of the show, Eric Moore, host of the Effectively Speaking podcast and our go-to source for all things special effects, as well as occasional bouts of nostalgia for 35mm projection. Welcome, Eric. Hello there. Thanks for joining us on this final show. No, no, thank you for having me. This is, um, you know, quite surreal. I've been listening, you know, to your Alien Minute and podcasts and all the other derivatives from there. I'm a big fan. And so to actually be talking to you guys is is all a bit surreal for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's surreal for me to hear your voice, given that I listen to your podcast. So it goes both ways. Oh, bless you. Thank you very much. I, I do think we should point out that this is not necessarily our final episode of 007 by 7. This is our final episode of Dr. No. I just mm. want to make sure people know that we're not saying that we're only doing Dr. No. Just to put that's, that out there. That's a good clarification. Yes. We don't know when we're going to start from Russia with love. No. But, but we, our plans will. are to get to from Russia with love. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, Eric, do you remember your first James Bond movie? I knew you were going to ask ask me this question, and uh, I don't have a clear answer. Um, and the reason for that, I mean, people my age, people you know, ten, twenty years younger than me, if you say James Bond to us in the UK, we think of bank holidays. Do you know what I mean when I say a bank holiday? You better explain that. Right. In the UK, we have five times a year, six times a year, a bank holiday. And, you know, it's going back hundreds of years where you would have a Monday off to give the banks a rest. OK, so everybody in the UK, five times a year, maybe six times a year, you have an, a paid holiday. OK, January the 1st being one of them. But there's uh, two in May. There's one in August. And uh, yeah, so everybody gets a, a day off, apart from obviously the people working in the shops and stuff. But when I was growing up, and as I say, people my age and below by a couple of decades, James Bond films were a staple of bank holidays, right? In the pre-video age, the only time, unless you went to the cinema to see the latest Roger Moore, for me to see a James Bond film, that was a big deal on the bank holiday Monday on ITV or BBC, you would have a James Bond, and everybody watched them. So, thinking back to my very first one I saw, I don't know, 
All right, that, that, that's the answer. I looked into it and apparently ITV, uh, the commercial TV station over here, we only had two at the time, we had ITV and BBC. Um, they broadcast the first James Bond film in 1975. And I know I didn't go to see any Sean Connery ones in the cinema. And I've shown Roger Moore ones, but I don't think I ever went to see a Roger Moore one. So it would have been a bank holiday, most probably a rainy bank holiday Monday, sometime in the mid-70s. They did show them initially in, um, in order. They transmitted them in order. But to me, the only two that stick in my mind from back then is Goldfinger and Dr. No. Yeah, I think that it was around 74, 75 in the States as well when they started to show them on television. It was probably a, a worldwide TV deal, I guess, that Eon had made. Yeah, I, I saw, you know, looking into it, that cinema chains were not happy that, uh, you know, Bond films are now going to be shown on TV. There's a quote from one of them saying, they're not only killing the golden goose, they're auctioning off the eggs. That's how it was seen. <laughs> yeah, know? it was so different back then. Even, well, I remember the like the biggest television premiere of my childhood was Star Wars, and I think that was 1982. So it, was, it had taken five years before Star Wars finally got on network television. I think it had been on HBO. But... Um, yeah, back then there was well, we we see it now a little bit with streaming, like the these deals that that the distributors are making to now release for streaming on day of release and so on, and we're getting kind of the same blowback. But back then it was just putting it on TV would get you blowback from the theaters. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not that long ago. Um, you know, like Disney. I remember when I started in cinema, Disney every I think it was every four years they would re-release a film, four or five mm -hmm. years. The idea being, you've got a new generation of children that have just grown up, and you can show it to them again. Same sort of thing. Yeah, which then they carried on to video, right, to their Disney Vault, where mm -hmm. they released these video, these video movies so many times a year as well. Yeah. So, so to answer your question, Mitch, I think I think. I don't know. I'm, I'm prone to say Goldfinger, but also because you're looking back so long ago, you've you've got the merchandise as well, and you know the the Aston Martin Goldfinger car. Okay, you know I was a little kid, but I knew who James Bond was from the toys. You know. Yeah, yeah. Did you have the larger of those cars? Did you have one of those cars with the the one with the revolving license plate? Yeah, it was the dinky one with the armored plate that comes up at the back and the ejector seat. Uh, yeah 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 no that, it was brilliant fun brilliant fun so that means that james bond was probably in your consciousness for a lot of your childhood right yeah i, I mean it this is what I'm, I'm i was trying to think i've always known of james bond but i can't have watched one before 75 but it just seems part of the uh, of the british consciousness james bond because also you, you know it was spoofed endlessly in all the comedy shows and you know you had the tv spin-offs uh, of versions you know you had you know the mission impossible you had the man from uncles etc cetera, etc cetera. so the the feeling of james bond was there even if i wasn't you know tuning in to the actual films you know yeah you know i was thinking about this being these final minutes of the movie and at some point I want to recap a few things that we've missed uh, whether before or after we go into these minutes but I also want to encourage you Eric if there's stuff that we've missed or that we want to kind of point back to in terms of of special effects for example um, I welcome you to just feel free to to do that when whenever you want to I'll tell you something I I uh, noticed a couple of days ago I was listening to your Patreon North by Northwest 
audio commentary. And uh, one of you said on that, and I thought it was very relevant, is that back then in the 60s and before, people, audiences were more forgiving for special effects. Um, so, you know, in Dr. No, you know, when you see that first miniature of Dr. No's base and you've got the two little boats bobbing up and down on the water, I don't think many people would have had much of a problem with that back then because it was just accepted. I mean, if you watch war films and stuff, films just after the war, it's clearly model planes thrown, flown on wires and, you know, and clearly some of those boats in a water tank aren't big enough because you can't miniaturize water. So it, it looks like a plastic boat on the water, you know, but I think audiences back then were far more, they just went along with it, didn't they? Do you think that have they found did they find a magic formula for how big the models had to be in response, you know, in respect to the water to make the water look not miniature? It's as big as possible. If you can, you've got to get it as big as possible. I mean, the ultimate, um, you know, until Titanic came along was a James Bond film. It, um, you know, it was uh, Spy Who Loved Me, wasn't it? It was the the oil tankers there. They were like 55 feet long, because if you make a ship that big, the waves are considerably more in scale than if it was like a 12-inch a model, you know? Right. But there's right. other tricks that they can do as well. Sometimes they would put oil on the water to, to, to slow the water movement down, you know? Um, this one that uh, um, is the start, really, of the special effects in Dr. No, when you've got that establishing shot of Dr. No's base from the air, and, yeah, you have got two tiny little boats there. If you look at the water... That's not very big, and they're not actual waves. If you have a look at it, it's not waves. It's more ripples, okay? Mm. They're like gentle little ripples, and I think what they've got is just off camera, they've got a fan just blowing air to just break the water up a bit, but not too much because then you will get a wave, and then you realize, you know, um, the trick's been blown, hasn't it? So how big was that model, do you think? I reckon, looking at it, the the actual Dr. No base itself, I reckon maybe when you see that aerial shot of it, maybe six foot across, I would say six, seven foot across, those boats, yeah, no, they're, they're not much bigger than your hand, I wouldn't have thought. So are there the same problems with fire as there are with water? Yeah, you can't miniaturize it. You just cannot miniaturize it. A couple of those explosions, look, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves in the minutes, but I do have to say this. I, watching it today, I thought the explosions were pretty convincing especially this the second one that's down to the lower right of the flame of the frame and it goes off and then the big black bunch of smoke comes in it, it's very interesting because um you've mentioned many times on on this podcast about how this is an embryonic bond of course because it's the first one but things that you take for granted in future bond films were starting here and what by the end is quite commonplace. No, this is the very first one, you know, and those explosions, yeah, they, they're sort of like setting the standard for what you'll see in many, many ends of Bond films. But yeah, you're right. They, they did it very well. They did it very, very well. They did the thing of you don't just have one explosion. You have a big one and then you have another one. Then you have another bigger one, you know, so you have a, almost like a rhythm to the explosions. Okay. And really it's Derek Meddings, um, who I always think of as as perfecting that in the Jerry Anderson shows, right? Because you know the 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 model work in 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 those shows was brilliant. The explosions were brilliant. But this this is 
before really he got going with the big explosions in the Jerry Anderson film. So it's very interesting to see that they've they've done something which becomes, you know, a classic way of doing it. As I say, there's a rhythm to the explosions. They've used high-speed photography and then slowed it down. Um, it's exactly, I mean, you know, you did the um, the Aliens minute. You know, when the dropship crashes into the colony, again, you had a system of explosions. You didn't have just one big explosion. And here we are in James Bond, 1962, and they were doing it back then. Was Derek Mettings involved with this, or did he come in later? Because I know John Steers is usually who gets credited, but he was sort of the head of just physical effects in general, right? No, uh, it's 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 interesting to look back at you know the history of special effects in in film and television, and at this time, you know, leading up to the sixties, you know, was a, a an immense change in the way of how special effects were done, and up until pretty much this point, um, you didn't have special effects departments in TV and you didn't have it in film you you had prop departments so you know the prop departments dealt with everything and then round about this time you had two things going on you had on the BBC they started up Doctor Who in 1963 and realized with this ongoing weekly science fiction series the regular prop department can't cope so they created a special effects department which is still going to this day um Shortly, around about this time, Derek Meddings was uh, forming his Century 21 company, which was created to provide all the effects for the Jerry Anderson shows. Okay, So just about th- this time, you had the birth, in the UK at least, of special effects departments. And yet, yeah, it is John Steers. John Steers did the miniature work in Doctor No. But no, Derek Meddings didn't come along on the Bond films until Live and Let Die. That's a long time. I didn't realize it was that long. Wow. Okay. I think it's because he's so synonymous with, you know, special effects of the Bond films. You you tend to think he was there right at the beginning, but no, no, no. John Steers, Roy Field, all these others were doing it before he came along. Well, let's jump into these minutes, which we join Bond coming out of that chamber still wearing Chang's suit. Poor Chang. <laughs> <laughs> there's There's something noticeable here, and I wouldn't call it a gaffe or anything like that. But we get Bond coming out. He closes the, the vault door. He turns, and he's, he's, he's taken off Chang's suit. He's pretty beat. Like, he's kind of huffing and puffing, and he's a little bent over. Exasperated. He gets to the door. He puts his hands up to the sides. Like, he's bracing himself from exhaustion. And then we, when we cut to the reverse shot, boy, he's ready to go. Like it, right doesn't away. he run his hand through his hair too? Yeah, it's, I think he, so I think he makes sure that the hair piece is in yeah. place, and then yeah. Oh, please. I was thinking it was more of a Fonzie move where you just gotta <laughs> get your hair just a little straight and you're ready to go again. Uh, yeah, it, it was just kind of a jarring cut. I'd never noticed it before, but you know, obviously watching it this way. But yeah, he's like, okay, I could, I go, I'm going to give myself one second here to be tired, and then jump right to it and immediately start yelling for honey. You, I I noticed in that this next shot in the corridor the real genius of how they pulled off that forced perspective hallway because the camera is just positioned in such a way that frame left, you can't see the whole hallway. So you've got people coming in and out of the hallway to frame right in front of the forced perspective hallway. Mm -hmm. But what really sells the gag is that you can't see the other side of it. And so then you've got all these people coming in and out of frame left and they could, for all intents and purposes, be coming down that long hallway, and we just mm-hmm. can't spot them. So it, it tricks. There's, it's a really 
great way of tricking the eye into thinking that there's more there than there is. I also, I don't think you really needed to do that much. I mean, it, this is the climax of the film and, and you know, Bond's got to find honey. Presumably all audience eyes are on Bond. So, you know, I mean, we we watch this with a view to what to talk about on a podcast. So we're looking beyond what we're supposed to be looking at. And they went to all that trouble. And I, But I don't think an audience back in 62, they would have been watching Sean Connery, not what the people were doing coming in left or right, would they? No, you're, you're definitely right. There, there's also just great energy created by all those people running all over the place, too. I, I, the movie gets a lot of credit for how it sustains the energy once he comes running out into that hallway all the way through. But also, I mean, this is the very first time in a Bond film, but this happens so many times in Bond films where the place is going to go up and you have the, the crowds of people running backwards and forwards. But no, this is the very first time. Why is everybody going different directions all the time? Like, is it, are we, uh, are we retrieving things that are needed or shouldn't everybody be, I mean, certainly a guy like Dr. Noah has had the, you know, drills. He's run some escape drills at some point. And you think people would be orderly, uh, uh, trying to find an exit in an orderly fashion. Maybe but. he hasn't. And that's why everybody's running all over <laughs> the place. So arrogant. Noah does, he doesn't care he's about like, people. Yeah. He's like Tarkin at the end of. Uh, you know, he's not going to escape in our moment of triumph anyway. So, uh, so no, that's why, why he would practice. He, he doesn't strike me as the kind kind of guy to do fire drills once a month yeah. or anything like that, you know. I'm sure he's got a little escape pod that he could have used maybe uh, had he not been drowned in, so immediately by Bond earlier. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so these people are running back and forth and Bond is looking for honey. So he's, I got a question for, for you guys. It's hard for, to answer it, being people that have seen the movie multiple times. But do you think when Bond starts yelling honey here that there are people that are watching this movie for the first time, they're like, what's he, what? Because <laughs> they've completely forgot about her because she hasn't been in the movie for so long. And no one's spoken of her and their movie hasn't been interested in her in so long. Um, she really does disappear for yeah. quite quite a long time. Yeah, And it's a strange thing to just start yelling honey if you're not 100% tuned into what he's talking about. But also, does he really expect her to respond? You know, in, in all this clamor and everything, he expects her to go, yes, I'm over here. <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah, where, where could she be that she could hear him yell that? Obviously, it's so we know. I mean, that's it, right? It's the mm, we yeah. know. It's to get us reassociated with the concept of her and uh, his need to rescue her. But it seems kind of sudden, almost like the jarring cut between him coming out of that corridor. It's like, oh, yeah, honey. You know, like, yeah, I got to find her. This is what we got to do now. This is the last bit of business in the movie. But uh, it's all very strange. <laughs> We do get our little reprise of the honeymoon suite. She's not in there, so we get to see that set one more time. One last time. Yeah, yeah, one last beautiful time. And then he, he runs to this woman and says, you know, where is she, right? Well, you're missing the poor, another poor unfortunate employee. Oh, of course. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I missed our, our, our guy which, we hit. Yeah, sorry. Which just makes me think of a, like an Austin Powers bit that could have been. Because he trips this guy. So this guy, he doesn't know mm. who this guy is. He trips him, picks him up. It's like, where's Honey? And I could very easily see a moderately famous, like, former SNL character actor <laughs> saying, who? And he's like, Honey, you're like, I don't even know who you are. Or, or I don't know, sweetie. Where <laughs> yeah, do you think she is? Like that. That's a little more Mel Brooks or, or Zucker Brothers. 
Yeah, it's, but but this guy doesn't he might not even know who Bond is. You know, like I wasn't working that shift when you came in. I don't know who you are. He could have just Very, been the cook or something, couldn't he? Right. And Bond is so insistent he know who she where she is that when he doesn't, he punches him in the face. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like what, man? Come on, Bond. Yeah, here's your reward. Much. It's pretty pretty brutal. He's he's mad. I guess this shows us that James Bond is I get, very. So is that it? Is that why it's here? You know, I understand the desperation of trying to find her, but why be this? I don't know. I guess it's okay. I guess it's okay to beat up these guys. They knew what they were getting into when they signed up to work for Doctor No. <laughs> Would he have punched him if he had told told him where? Honey Probably. Was? Yeah, I think Probably. he was going to punch this guy one way or the other. Do you think, but if Bond hadn't punched him out, maybe that guy would have survived. He, he knocks him out. You know, if Bond hadn't punched him, he could have got off that base before it blew up. And just like Chang, he was probably just trying to get out of there and go home to his wife and kids. Yep. So just <laughs> yeah, just doing his job. Bond Be careful who you work killing for. People. These poor family men, orphaning children. It's Bond. <laughs> just an awful man. James Bond, the literal corporate raider. So, all right, then he goes to somebody else and asks where the girl is right right and her response is she's in number 12 <laughs> right so that's... so these doors we assume are all numbered some numbers are hotel suites and others in the case of number 12 is this strange high gantry thing that goes down to a incline that water's pouring in with manacle things where you can tie right. somebody down, right? Right. So I wanted somebody to give me a guess as to what this is, what this room's exact function is, and why there's at least 12 of them. I think its function <laughs> is to do just what it's doing. I can't think of any other reason why you would have manacles on a concrete slope going down right. into the water, you know? Right, because they don't just like, did they just bolt the manacles down for her? Or you're right, is, is it a water torture room? It could well be, couldn't it? God, it's really big for a water torture room. Kind I thought they did it with drips with water torture. Oh. Well, that particular water. In this case, the torture is just the slowly rising water that okay. will eventually drown you. It isn't in the novel, it wasn't water. It was crabs or something. She was going to be nipped yeah, to death or something. Yeah, she was going to be e eaten by a horde of migrating crabs, mm. which... The plot is foiled only because, unfortunately, Doctor No doesn't realize that the crabs aren't going to eat flesh. Ah, okay. So they so they just run by her, and the female Tarzan that she is, the animals don't touch her. Right. Oh, so boy. really, really bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kind of bad plotting. Did you notice um, this? The we get a nice stunt from from this guy that Bond flips over the edge, and if you look really closely, you can see the guy lying there on what looks like a bunch of boxes to me. Oh, I hadn't no, noticed I that. Notice that. So it's kind of great. What's weird is that you would have thought they would have had, I guess that's just as wide as they wanted to go, but I get the impression they did it all in one. He hit the boxes. He laid there still, and if you glimpse him, it looks like a guy you know, did fall and land on something, but hmm. I, think it's, I think those are boxes to break the fall. That's okay. my guess. I will say that I am internally programmed to expect a Wilhelm scream right there. Every time I mm. watch that fall, I kind of yeah. hear it in my mind. <laughs> I, I, I want Wilhelm screams with everything. <laughs> so I've been programmed for it. Thanks, George. 
Well, it's weird that there's not a more spectacular angle to cover the fall from, too. I guess it's just got to be that they were just moving very, very quickly. Mm. And they had already tried to figure out how we're going to get us out of this mess because, as you know, anybody who's read anything about this knows, they had brought in a bunch of crabs that they hoped were going to make this situation like the book, and the crabs were either dead or frozen and sluggish and... Everybody, they couldn't get him to work, and apparently Ursula Andress jokes that they all had crab for dinner that night. Everybody took one home. So this was really just uh, what they came up with on the fly? Yeah, so he had to whip up. I think that grate wasn't even going to be part of the shot, if I understand this correctly. So they whipped up the grate and figured out a way to pump water in there and and did it very quickly. That explains a lot because kind of like the death of Dr. No or the fight um, where Dr. No meets his demise, this lacks any suspense. Like you would think that, okay, if this is a little set piece, like let's set it up. Let's have it be suspenseful in some way. Let's have, let's actually have her near death when he comes in or like, I would think also turning her upside down would be a better way. Like we could have an actual yeah. waterboarding kind of situation. You know, there's lots of things they could have done to make this more interesting showing her cutting to her before bond finds her. Like basically we get her, then bond comes in. Right. We don't really yeah. have a beat even before. So if we cut to her earlier when he's looking for her, maybe even then we get a little more suspense. It's just it's really not suspenseful at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really even perils of Pauline because you don't see the train on the way to right. run her over on the tracks. Right. If the water was rising, I mean, why not at least have her underwater? <laughs> you know, I mean, hey, it doesn't hurt box office sales to have a wet Ursula Andress like no. a second time, you know, either. It just seems like something they could have thought of. I think the problem they had there was the the water tank that that little set is in, they couldn't have put any more water in it because the water level level doesn't really go up, does it? So, so yeah, unless, yeah, John, you're right, unless she was the other way round with the water near her hair, they can't do anything else. So there is no drama. He isn't rescuing her from, uh, from certain death, is he? Not really. No. I mean, this was hours away. Her death at best was like an hour away. (laughs) And, you know, and after they had said at the dinner table, the guards will take care of her or whatever, right, implying something horrible. That another pro- another possibility would have been that he rescued her from the yeah. guards, yeah. Yeah. you know. But I guess they were just yeah, running out of time, running out of money and needed to get something done quickly. He could have punched some more guys and these guys would have actually deserved it even more than yeah. most yeah. of the people he's exactly. beaten up. All right, so he gets her out of the manacles and it's and they're just off and running. I was going to say, I guess there's a key in the manacles, is there? Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> They're just e- easy, <laughs> easy off manacles. You know, mm. you just can't take them off if you're the one in the manacles, I guess. <laughs> good it, call on that, Eric. I guess yeah, there I must be. I've only seen this how many times and it never occurred to me. That... So even getting, even having to take the time to get the manacles off in a creative way could have added some suspense. Yep. It's like they just didn't. And, uh, and you know, there's only so much of the, of, the budget excuse that I'm forgive with some. I mean, it doesn't take anything to have him have to pick up a rock and break the manacles mm. or any just something else. I don't know. It it just seems like they do, they weren't thoughtful of of suspense here in, yeah. in this in the third act of this movie. I mean, maybe there was a, you know they do, they were doing better in the earlier parts, but here where well, it's really important. I think you're right, and I think that. Maybe that's one of the elements that is missing from this James Bond film. Yeah. And as we look at this, you know, there are certain things that we haven't seen yet. We really haven't seen gadgets. Can't really count the Geiger Mm -hmm. counter. 
So we get to From Russia with Love, and not only does it have a lot of gadgets, but it has a lot of suspense. Yeah. They get so much mileage out of Robert Shaw every turn creating mm-hmm. suspense with him. So maybe they learned a lesson. I don't know. I mean, I think, well, I mean, we, you know, we're getting a season ahead of ourselves with that, but they are certainly relying more on a Hitchcockian style and the, from Rush With Love. Mm. They not only are borrowing imagery and just ideas from Hitchcock, but I think that they're they're thinking, man, we we wanted Hitchcock. You know, there was that thought of originally wanting Hitchcock for Dr. No, and and then, I mean, maybe they thought, yeah, maybe we should lean back into that a little bit more. We're not going to get Hitchcock, but maybe we should take some of his ideas and actually work in the suspense a little bit more. We'll find out when we get there. Yeah, so this does come out of a mold that's a lot more of a straight-ahead kind of action picture, right? Right. Mm. And I don't, I don't know what we can point to in English cinema up to this point that would be a, you know, a, a, a precursor to this thing. Can you think of anything, Eric? No, I mean this is why it was so groundbreaking. You know, the Bond films. I don't think this combination of elements put together in a way like this had really been seen before. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think about that Carol Reed film, uh, not not the Third Man, but the one that that was like the Hitchcock thing with the. Do you remember which one I'm talking about, John? Fall, with the Fallen Idol. Not Fallen Idol, the one mm. with the cable car. Oh, uh, yeah, it's Night Train to Munich. Yeah, and that was Carol Reed, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So, more of an espionage thriller, more of a Hitchcock right. ripoff well, you, than your Odd Man action. Out. You know, Carol Reed was doing Third Man, even. You know, even yeah. Third Man has uh, some action adventure and suspense thrown in even though it falls a little more in the noir uh, category. Yeah, I, I, you know, I can't think of anything. I'm thinking of Palin Pressburger, but I can't think of a Palin Pressburger I would call even, you know, even like the 49th Parallel doesn't really have the structure of a suspense thriller. You know, yeah. even though there is a little intrigue and there's, a you know, enemies on the shore, it's really much more of a piece of, of, a, of a social piece, you know, so mm. I don't know, you know. Yeah, this was a, the, this color spectacle that we get after he rescues her out on the bauxite plant with, again, lots of people running to and fro, mm. but you get a lot of mileage out of the black smoke. Cool. Boy, do you. I mean, there's no <laughs> fire, but boy, there's, it, it looks like tire burning kind of smoke, too. It looks like yeah. that pretty unpleasant stuff, right? Which it probably was, right? Like mm. those, what do they call those pots, uh, kind of tar pots that they would burn for smoke? And that, that's probably an easy way to get some black smoke, right? I'm trying to think of what those are called. Uh, uh. Not smudge pots? Smudge pots. Yeah, yeah. that's it, smudge pots. Yeah, yeah. is that what, it, wouldn't you say that's a good way to get some cheap, cheap, easy smoke? I, I, there's a, a couple of way? shots where it looks like the smoke is just off the lens. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're, they're fanning it just, to, you know, to give it some foreground. Sure. And in other places, it's really smoking. So I, I do give them credit for creating a lot of stuff going on. Hmm. All this running around, I do wonder, is what you were saying earlier, you know, where are they all going? Um, that, 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 they're just crisscrossing each other. I mean, in a minute, Bond and Honey are going to find a boat. All the people on the same level as Bond and Honey, the boat is there, but nobody's going for the boat. Completely right. missed the boat. No, people are much more willing to just dive into the water than just find the boat. Well, there are two guys in the boat when they get when they get down there. One of whom is strangely unconscious to, all through the whole thing. But we'll get there in a, in a sec. Those two guys told everybody that the boat was gone already. <laughs> guys, get, I looked and the boat was gone already. So give up on that idea. So everybody's panicking now, and those two guys are just sneaking off to the boat. They we get they were for get guys away. jumping off the edge too. There's a lot of excitement in yeah. in watching people jump into the water. Mm-hmm. That's, I, that's the 
Chris Blackwell moment, right? Right. I right. jumped the gun last week and mentioned the Chris Blackwell thing, but I think he's the second guy you see, right? I think I he's got to so. be. Yeah. It's a pretty good dive. Gotta say. Go- yeah, they're diving head first. Mm-hmm. You couldn't get me to dive head first. Oh. I'd be jumping in feet first. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'd be cannonball. <laughs> Definitely a cannonball. Do you think that's Ursula going down the pylon? I think so. Do you th- uh, yeah, I, I like think her. so too. But they so let's say they put handholds in that thing. Still, that's you know that's the kind of thing that a stunt person would often be required to do. And no, not it then. Sure looks like her. Yeah, because I, I I was looking and you know when she jumps onto the boat and she's at the front of the boat and she undoes the mooring. I'm sure that's Ursula Andress doing all that. Yeah. yeah, it definitely. Once she's yeah, when she's unmooring the sh- the boat, it definitely is her. So, it so is be. it Sean Connery or is it Bob Simmons? Because I was looking and I wasn't sure that it was Connery. Ah, uh-huh. you know what? I wasn't looking at him. Got to admit, as 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 everyone knows, you would not be. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was just more interested. In, hey, she's unmooring. Of course, she knows how to do that. She's she's an accomplished. Uh, boat, you know, she she sails her own boat to Crab Key all the time. So I was just yeah. like looking at her, going, "Yeah, this boy, I'd like to have gotten more of of Honey doing stuff." But Andres has said in interviews that that she was, they were very happy about the fact that she was, as she says, sporty, and she also felt like that was to her advantage working in it because she liked physical acting, you know, mm-hmm. and. Her athleticism really helped because she's she's great. Mm. Mm. What do you think of the, about the guy who gets punched once and he spends the rest of the time just hanging over the edge of the boat? <laughs> I know, I know. So he, he he punches that guy first, and then he punches the other guy, throws him off, and yeah. then throws the next guy. Right? Yeah, he must have really got him with a good one. Yeah, yeah. That that I'm a adds bit, for extra excitement. I'm a bit puzzled about this boat because when they pull away. I call me naive, but I thought all controls on a boat were at the front. But Bond seems to be operating it halfway down the boat. The boat moves off. Does it have an outboard motor? Is he back at the back? And no, he's no, he's the motor it, on? no, no, he's in the middle of the boat, and he's like he's hunched over something. So there must be a control, a lever or something at the side of the boat. You'd think he'd be up at the front, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I didn't notice that. And at no point later is he, you know, next time we see him, he's he's checking, well, we're out of gas, which is so, so obvious. <laughs> yeah. He just wipes it real quick before the, the dipstick. <laughs> but oh, before we get to the dip, dipstick, Sorry. we just touch right back one last time on, on after, after we push the unconscious guy off. Yeah. Uh, they cut hard to that explosion, and it just goes. Mm, There's yeah. no five, four, three, two, one there's nothing and i wonder if it if audiences were maybe a little you know shocked by that it could well be at at this time as i say i mean you know this is the standard explosion you get in 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 movies now and tv shows and at exactly the same time derek meddings was doing very similar stuff on the jerry anderson shows but yeah that is a violent explosion and it's done superbly i mean that would hold up today you could have that explosion in a modern bond film and it would work wouldn't it yeah, I think so. I think that the the little uh, radar thing that comes out earlier on looks like a model. Wow. You know, but this explosion does not look like a model at all. I thought it was really convincing. It's I, funny, Mitch. I, I wanted to ask Eric what to, to backtrack to last week. What 
what are you what is that radar dish is it a matte painting with a hole in it that they poke a model through because that's what it looks like to me no it's all part of the model it's all, really? all part of the model yeah and where it fails for me is you know um with model work film it high speed then slow it down right because that slowness gives weight to things and it's just the yeah. way that that the, the hatches just slide open and the thing pops out in real time and that always blows it as well yeah you know? I don't know. There's something that looks so flat about that to me. Like that first image you get, and then when the door opens and that thing comes out. No, it looks I, it I looks like it a model a to me. It looks okay. like a model to me. Yeah, the, the the explosion is definitely more convincing, and that has to be because it's slowed down, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I like the the cut to it. The cut to it. The explosion has already started. I think that's what you're talking about, Mitch. Uh, that that what is what gives it impact. You know, I mean, if if you had just had an, an establishing shot for like two seconds of the base, and then it blows up, it wouldn't have been as dramatic. It's the fact that you cut and the explosion's already happening, and then you get this beat of a couple more explosions going. I think that's what makes it so effective. That, that makes sense, because it reminds me of when I saw Superman the first time, the Richard Donner Superman, and when Krypton blows up, it seems like there's forever where you're just staring at it before it blows yeah. up, and I remember feeling like, that wasn't... That wasn't very exciting. Mm. Mm. What about the Death Star, though? Because you get the same thing. You get a good couple of seconds before it blows up. Y yeah, but at least you have that. I think the music kind yeah. of... The yeah, the, the music is counting you down to it, and then it stops and boom. So that adds to it, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, what was John Williams doing during... Uh... He wasn't doing that, man. <laughs> <laughs> In so Superman, this... he was not doing Interesting. that. You'd think he would kind of do... You know, if it worked out that time, you'd think he'd do it again. Uh, something at least something similar to help the moment. Hmm, that's funny. But I'll remember that. It's kind of like always cut on a move. Always start when the explosion has started. Mm -hmm. Don't give it a second before. That's good advice, I think. Mm. All right. So, so then we can get to what do we dissolve to them? Checking. Yeah, to yeah. dissolve actually. Yeah, yeah, at them out there, which is interesting. Just like you'd expect Bond to. He tells her they're out of gas. I bet he's done this before. Uh, this is not a first time for him. And, you know, you know, this is just so what exactly I think of the end of a Bond movie to be. Like, I, I honestly don't remember specific endings of Bond movies very well. They all kind of end in my mind this way. Hmm. Like the little codas. Uh, how many times is he on a boat, a raft, or an iceberg, or <laughs> whatever it may be? A parachute. Uh, or a... Anything, you know, yeah. where it's just, just me and you and... Uh, I'm willing to be stranded in the middle of the ocean for who knows how long just to make out a little bit. And the filmmakers said they were very conscious of this being a tag, and they were going to have tags like this through all the movies. Right. So it's that formula thing. I don't know where that impulse or instinct comes from. I, I don't know if there was a history of, uh, I don't know, to carry on movies have tags at the end? I have no idea. No, but, no, they don't. That, 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 they were completely standalone, and none of them um, had any you know impact there was never a follow-through. They were like just standalones. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's great that it, that they're building the the formula right here. Yeah, that's what I find so interesting about Doctor No. I mean, y you look at it now and it's like, oh, that's a trope, that's a trope, that's a trope. But no, this is the first time. So what you're saying there, John, you know, to have a base, a countdown to an explosion, you have all the minions running around, you have the explosion, and then Bond and the girl afterwards. You know, right here from from the get-go, it was there, wasn't it? 
Yeah. Yep, this one that this is one part that they really had figured out, I guess. So Hmm. And good, those good guys with them. Jack Lord, those don't look like US Marines to me. I wouldn't know. Oh, don't don't ask me. There's a Jamaican flag flying, right? I assume that's the Jamaican flag. Is there a Jamaican Coast Guard? I don't something know. like that. I'm not police, sure. Police boat could be anything. He's just got some guys. Yeah. Just, <laughs> it's like, I got a megaphone. Come on, let's go. <laughs> we got to go interrupt uh, my friend when he's trying to make out with somebody. God, we, there's a funny moment here. And uh, I, I don't want to go too blue here, but there's a moment here where, where, <laughs> where Lighter shows up. Where Lighter shows up. They're like, yep, might as well give us a tow while you're here. Throws the rope. They start towing them, and then Honey slides down to the floor, and then they cut to Lighter. And it's like, man, if they would have just shown Lighter, you know, googly-eyed right there and cut away <laughs> or something, that would have been extremely racy. I wonder how many... That would have been a problem with the sensors. Mm. I, I, oh, feel I, like they're, I feel like they're getting away with it because they know what they're implying, but they can't push it too well, hard, no. and yeah. then they go back. Even Terrence back Young and, said, this is all yeah. we could get away with. Yeah, Bond joins her on the floor you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now, it does make you wonder you know like it's it's one of those things could they maybe have gotten away with it at the end like the way that you know billy wilder got away with the ending of some like it hot or something you know, where it was like well the only way that that moment in some like it hot could happen is at the very very end of the movie you know that's kind of the the famous slip that one by the censors the idea of two men marrying each other <laughs> right. right into a mainstream movie and uh May, I wonder if they could have gotten away with it had they had they cut to lighter, going like, oh, that bond, and then cut back to the, the end part with the boat. Mm-hmm. And we're not seeing anything. We're not sure. But I wonder if they could have tried it. It would have been. Would you have gone to the hand unloosing the rope then? Because yeah, that's that, kind of Well, the that's what Hitchcock would have done, right? I mean, yeah. the, Hitchcock you know, always had that hand kind of hand fascination and. And then him letting go of the a hand on a rope would have been very suggestive. That something that Hitchcock liked to do as well. And then letting go of the rope would have been yeah, that would have been interesting. It could have been they could have tried it. They could have just tried it and seen. But, I uh, I just find it amazing, you know, that yeah, you're very restricted on what you can do here. But what like 16 years later, you've got you know a similar end in Moonraker, and you've got I think he's attempting reentry, sir. You know, <laughs> things yeah. have changed so much in such a short time. <laughs> and and yet, what's so interesting is that they've always maintained. They could go further now, but they don't. No, they could have gone further then, but they didn't. And so that's also interesting. Oh. Well, the brand yes. innuendo is at the part of the brand. You right. know, that's if you go past innuendo, it's not Bond anymore, right? No. You no. know. <laughs> but that's a wise decision on the part of the producers because we've certainly seen other producers of other even series of films not having as firm a grasp on the brand and following the loosening up of the codes. Like even Blood, like James Bond films Casino Royale is one of the one of the bloodier ones, right? But if you look at the Roger Moore ones, there's barely even squibs mm-hmm. on anybody mm-hmm. getting shot. Yeah, the, the violence is hef- heavy, but the, the blood is low. And, the, and then if you're going to do something severe to the human body, it's got to be ridiculous almost like in, to live and let, or in the live and let die um, ending. You know, So you could do horrible things to the human body, but it kind of has to push it past the reality it's got to be cartoon like yeah. isn't it right yeah and i and you know that i like that you know i almost don't need uh in bond movies i don't need it to go beyond that but 
I also don't really notice it like with the with the Roger with or with the Daniel Craig ones. It's just like almost like we're just in this whole other era of Bond, and mm. I accept that. So um, there's definitely a different approach to making these films now. And if they want to bloody it up, that's fine. That's the era we're in now. I don't really even think I've thought about it that much. Hmm. PG-13 helps. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're in the PG-13 era where everything from children's programming, basically, to uh, adult fare like James Bond is PG-13. It all kind of falls under that same umbrella and you can get by with Gives them a lot of leeway to do what they want with stories and so on. You know, I noticed as the credits were rolling on the version I was looking at, which was the old Criterion uh, Laserdisc version that has the band commentary on it, Kitzmuller's name was spelled with a U, which is how I've been pronouncing it, but I guess it's Kitzmiller. So there, I think there's a typo on the credits. All right. There, there, were, yeah. there were other mistakes on the credits, but yeah. Hmm. And the version that I was watching didn't have James Bond will return in From Russia with Love. But I guess there were some versions, according to something I was reading today, that actually did name what the next film was going to be. Maybe that was a re-release. Maybe they put that on at the end on a re-release. Yeah, Maybe. probably was. I mean, but they would, it would, have, would it have had to have been a re-release before From Russia with Love came out? Or is it something that maybe they did just to... Let people know. Well, if you're watching Doctor No, there's also another movie to watch. You know, I don't know. I know the they started or... putting the film titles in, at least by, I think Goldfinger said he'll be back in Thunderball, and they started naming them until they got themselves into trouble. Right. With Moonraker versus Fear Eyes Only, and then I think they decided we better stop doing this because it ties us down to what our next film's going to be. All yeah, right. Yeah. One thing I didn't mention in an earlier show that I have since discovered, and I guess that's the thing about this: you're always learning new things. But I found out, going way back to uh, Professor Dent coming to Miss Taro's house, that there's a shot of him walking frame left to frame right to get to her place, and it's actually the shot of Connery walking frame right to frame left that they flipped and darkened no. because they didn't have a shot of Anthony Dawson <laughs> entering the place. <laughs> so they darkened it all down. So if you look at the suit, it's like, oh, yeah, that's not, that's not Professor Dent. Isn't that great? Oh, oh, wow. No, yeah. I mean, I guess. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Wow, they they were just really on running and gunning, huh? I mean, if you don't have that shot, what was going on that day? Maybe they figured know. you didn't need it. Maybe it was going to be dramatic figured... enough to just have him sitting there waiting for Dent to walk into the set. I don't know. I but don't either. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, you would think the coverage would be pretty important. You just want to make sure it get. <laughs> I mean, we're here. Let's do one more setup. Well, they didn't. I mean, it's something that I've never noticed. I mean, it's I went back the and looked, the whole and movie. it's yeah. totally right. I, I I don't even think we talked about that shot when we talked about those minutes. We just took it for granted that it was just traffic, but it's special traffic that we know. Eric, did you notice anything? You've been listening along. Is there anything else that we've missed or that you wanted to bring to the conversation as we wind down with Dr. No? Yeah, I, I just wanted to just mention John Steers, who um, did the model work. He, he, he did the boats. He did the, uh, the base. Um, yeah, no, like I say, you know, back at this time, you know, uh, film studios didn't have special effects departments. They, they just relied on their prop departments for doing things. And if something was a bit beyond them, then they fielded it out to um, freelance companies, 
to do the work. And they had been, in the 1950s, Pinewood Studios had been fielding it out to a company called Shawcroft Models, right? Do either of you know of a company called Shawcroft Models? No. Uh-uh. No, no. If you're a Doctor Who fan, you know of Shawcroft Models because Shawcroft Models, um, they were a company which literally worked out of a couple of sheds in Uxbridge, which is just west of Heathrow Airport and not that far from Pinewood, only a couple of miles away. Um, And they used to build models for all sorts of things. They used to build models for exhibitions, um, things for museums, etc., etc. You know, if you wanted like a Sputnik or something like that, a large Sputnik model, they would make it, right? They did an awful lot of aircraft. Um, You know, in the old days when we went to travel agents, um, you would have like a a big model of a jumbo 747 cutaway and you could see all the seats inside you know they were making those sorts of things and here in the early 60s Shawcroft were very busy because as I say the BBC were inundated with Doctor Who and they worked on the first three or four years um, on Doctor Who they actually built the original Daleks they didn't design them but they built them Okay, that was those guys, that Shawcraft models. All right, and in the 50s, they had been working an awful lot with um, Pinewood, making models for the films being made at Pinewood. They made the 40 foot Titanic for A Night to Remember. Um, They did a 30 foot ship for Battle of the River Plate, and they did all 35 ships for Sink the Bismarck. Okay, so they knew Pinewood, Pinewood knew them. Um, this film, Dr. No, Dr. no, the head of special effects was Frank George. Now, Frank had started out in special effects in 1950. He worked on Quatermass 2, was his first special effects. Then he did Dr. No. After Dr. No, he did From Russia With Love, Goldfinger and Thunderball. Um, but it was Frank who got to know John Steers when John Steers used to arrive with the models that he had made. And um, John Steers had fallen in with these guys and actually left Shawcraft Models and was working at Pinewood at the time. So he had a very good background in building very convincing miniature effects. Um, He did a lot of the planes for Reach for the Sky, the Douglas Bader biography. And um, yeah, impressed them at Pinewood, was taken on by them. And yeah, he was given the job to build... Dr. No's miniature base and I think he did a brilliant job I mean just color wise the color matching on that model to the the live action one it's absolutely perfect isn't it yeah it's amazing yeah it really is so were they and they were on a I assume a studio tank right a standard yeah at Pinewood this that I can't remember the dimensions it's still there to this day you know it's it's like 100 foot by 80 foot with a big cyclorama backdrop you know it's still it's still in use to this day um but i when i was listening to one of your very first minutes on this podcast and you were saying about the little boats that you see you know and yeah. and one of you guys said oh they just went to a toy shop and and got a couple of boats i don't think so because as soon as i heard that when i got home I, I i i watched it and they matched too much the uh the actual live action boats i think that was john actually making miniature boats to go alongside it because physically they resemble them far too much to be something that you got in woolworths or something you know well, you know, Terence Young has been known to stretch the truth on many occasions in terms of his uh, involvement, so I, w- I wouldn't be surprised. No, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, John worked on the first eight James Bond films, 
um, and co-won the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects in 65 for Thunderball. That was uh, John's work. Um, he designed that amazing motorcycle with the, uh, with yes. the rocket launcher on it. Yep, right? yep. He also worked on adapting the Aston Martin in Goldfinger. He did the avalanche effects in On Her Majesty's Secret Service and um, shared another uh, Academy Award in 77 for Star Wars. He was one of the special effects crew on Star Wars. He was part of the crew that built the Luke's Land Speeder. Um, also dressing the garbage compactor and also the full-size sand crawler. That was John Steers working on that. So, uh, yeah, quite an interesting guy. Apparently, he left the Bond uh, franchise because he became disenchanted with it and, and vowed never to do another one. Um, he, he complained that the team spirit had gone. Um, now, do you know about a rival Bond film called uh, Warhead? Well, you mean Never Say Never Again? Yeah, when it was going to be Warhead. Yeah, he he, yeah. he was roped in for that, and he was going to work on it, but then when it mutated and became Never Say Never Again, uh, he dropped out. Um, he said never again. Yes, he does. <laughs> um, and, and then he went on to work on The Martian Chronicles TV show, uh, The Rock Hudson Thing, Outland, yeah. which you guys have discussed before, um, uh, the Bounty, Haunted Honeymoon, and the last thing he was working on was Babylon 5. Um, I'm, I'm presuming... The ships not... in the Bounty are amazing. Oh, Those they are. are. spectacular, yeah. Yeah, the only other snippet of information I got on John Steers is in 1993, he upped and moved to California, but he sold his uh, big estate to Ozzy Osbourne. So when you would see Ozzy Osbourne in his big home in England, that used to belong to John Steers. <laughs> wow, the job must have worked out okay yeah. for John for a while. There, uh, but no, no, it, it, no, it wasn't just that. I think he and his wife, I think they bred, you know, pedigree dogs or something. You know, it, it was quite a, a, a lucrative uh, Probably site, miniature, site. <laughs> miniature schnauzers. Miniature, miniature poodles, yeah, yeah. Um, also, a couple of people I'd like to mention as well, looking into the special effects on this film. You had Cliff Cully, who was the matte artist. He was uncredited. I always hate it when, you know, you get very talented effects people and they don't get even a bloody credit. So yeah. Cliff Cully, matte artist. Roy Field uh, it was down as visual effects. He was uncredited as well. Um, what else? Oh, no, I was just going to say, um, if, if we rewind quite a way back to uh, the spider scene, the spider on, you know, yeah. James Bond's arm. It's not really a special effect. It's more practical. Um, I'd just like to say, I mean, what we've got to remember, I mean, we look at it now and you can see the reflection in the glass. You can see what's going on. But we've got to remember, you know, that we're watching a pristine print in HD. But, you know, Mitch, you'll know this, that, um, and John, um, you know, back in the day, you, you might have a very good print, you know, in a in in your local cinema, but sometimes you know the lenses weren't that good on the projectors, so you'd get a, a fuzziness. You might have a scratch print. You've got judder in the gate as well. Sometimes you know the gate of projectors could be incredibly juddery, and I think all these things combined, I don't think an audience of sixty-two would have spotted it. You know, I really don't. This audience who saw it on VHS when it first came out on home video didn't spot it. Well, there you go. <laughs> because they weren't overscanned. No. They looked probably a lot closer to what you saw in the cinema if you'd seen the film. And, you know, that, that covers a lot of 
ground. It, it's those cinematographers were thinking about what it was going to look like when it was projected, and who would have guessed that you would have this 4K over scanning of it so that you could see every single detail? Well, I, I, I mean, I always, me, the, the, sorry, John. I was just going to say my problem with that effect has nothing to do with anybody working on it except for Connery. Like. Just don't move, man. Everything would have been perfectly fine if he would have just held still. Yeah, you know that. To me, that's where the problem comes from. No, one other thing I was just going to say there, Mitch, that um, what you just said there reminds me of Ray Harryhausen when he would have people, you know, at signings and conventions come up to him and say, say, look, did you know that if you pause, you know, Jason and the Argonauts at this point, the animation stand is there for one frame, and he's like. You weren't ever supposed to pause my films. You weren't supposed to do this. You're meant to go to a cinema and see it you know, on a big screen. You were never designed to pause it like this, you know? Yeah, definitely. Exactly. You know, you said um, the, the judder? Yes. Uh, so that's, that's very English because, you know, here it's gate weave. Gate weave. Oh, no, over here it's judder. Yeah, judder's better. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it makes it, it's more descriptive. I mean, it doesn't really weave. I'll tell you another here you go here's some 35 millimeter projection talk for you you said at the top of the show that I provide it is for some um, another comparison in different terms what you call in America the um, the the platters you know for yeah. the films going up and through the projector and back to another plate the platter over here we call them cake stands <laughs> Cake stands cake stands because they look like a cake stand where you have a different yeah. tier of uh, cake yeah you know I wonder what they were originally called because I heard it was a German guy in Stuttgart who invented the platter system. I wonder what the German. I, I read once it was a very long technical term about a non. <laughs> of course it was. <laughs> a not yeah of course a non rewindable dot 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 yeah so, 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 some very overcomplicated term yeah but I I, I like the way you know we share a language but we have different terms for different things yeah gate weave that's a new one on me. We were running some 16 millimeter trailers the other night in the backyard and a friend of mine had brought over and my daughter was watching and there was a hair in the gate and she didn't know what it was. She's like, what is that thing? What is that thing? It's like, oh my God. Oh God, that's on Prince. Like I saw, what was I watching the other day that had a hair on the Criterion channel? You know, it was like on the print. There's nothing they could ever do about it. I guess. There's nothing as magical as a live hair in the gate because oh, it no. really just, you don't know what it's going to go and when it's going to disappear and when it's going to come back. And it's, it's exciting. Tom Waits says that he thinks that's the most exciting thing about watching movies. In the 90s <laughs> and the 2000s, you know, if, um, because we had them then, if we got a hair in the gate, you would have a can of compressed air and you tried firing it through to try and move it. <laughs> but before that, in the 80s, you would be blowing. You'd just be... It must have looked ridiculous if you were in the auditorium and looked up through the porthole and saw a, project, a projectionist just blowing on the projector. <laughs> Eric, I know you're, you're a big fan of The Great Race, as I am. Oh, yes. Um, that's where I kind of learned about that was they do that intro in the old, yes. fa very old fashioned style and the hair shows up in the yep. shadowy hand with the tweezers comes in to pull it off. <laughs> uh, that's where I learned, oh, you know, I've probably seen some hair. So I was like, never thought about the reasoning until I saw that movie. Yeah. I was talking to somebody who'd shot a low budget movie in Italy back in the early eighties, I think. And they were complaining about the fact that there had been a fly that had somehow gotten into the into the operation in, in the lens area 
and that nobody wanted to kill the fly because it was bad luck to kill the fly. And this may be just some crew trick they were playing on everybody. But production shut down for like an hour as they tried to carefully get the fly properly and alive out of the lens area. I've, I've had a fly on the other side of the porthole. That's always annoying because, you know, he, he's just scurrying around on the glass and you can see him. And if on a bright scene, yeah, you've got a little shadow moving around on the on the screen and it's a fly and you can't get to it because it's on the auditorium side of the yeah. of the porthole. You can't take the porthole out. Everybody will hear all the noise, the clatter of the projector, you know. Why would we want any of this back? <laughs> With all of these things that can go wrong. Sounds fantastic to me. Oh, yeah. I loved it. I, great time. Great time. I was just, just watching, a bet you'll love that I'll mention Columbo again. I was just watching an episode of Columbo where the cigarette burn was the, on a, on a reel of film was the clue to the murder. <laughs> oh, I haven't I'll got to that one yet. That. Yeah, right, it's, it's a matter cool. of timing. There was a timing in a screening room, and then the projectionist taught Columbo about the cigarette burn. Oh, no, that was, the, that, that was an early was one, right? That's an oh, early Columbo. It's like the last one. It's it's almost the last Columbo. I oh. think it's the third to the last one in production and the last one in air. And then there's but there is then there is another one where he also makes friends with a projectionist. Well, there's where, one where Robert Culp. Yeah, yeah, the Robert Culp projecting. one, right? And there's they they do they do some uh, 35 millimeter or some some cinema yeah, yeah, projection a, no, talk well, in that but one it's too. It's sound. It's yeah. sound related because yeah. he was ADRing. Uh, speech and then he had a tape but we're right. getting into Columbo what are we doing talking about Columbo stop <laughs> right. it's okay everybody loves Columbo right <laughs> uh, anything else Eric that you can think of no that's me that, that I'm spent on the special effects this time yeah this time right we'll, we'll get yep. you back when we've got some helicopters to blow up in the next one yeah 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 <laughs> and then we got Goldfinger and we've got then then we get going. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, just yeah. gets better and better. And Again, better. the film with uh, the bass blowing up with people running left and right and right and left. Yes, yeah. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank, thank, it- thank you for having me. This is, uh, um, I was a bit nervous, but uh, no, 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 you've been lovely and it's been great fun. So thank you very much. Um, send I, everybody towards your podcast toward Effectively Speaking where oh, it yeah, is please do. filled with lots of interesting stuff on all sorts of movies we're just about to do a double bill on Flash Gordon we're going to do the Mike Hodges 81 first followed by the original 36 um, comparing them to the Alex Raymond comic strips so that's the next little one we're going to be doing okay that sounds great, sounds great yeah. oh and while, while I'm on can I also just say I'm, I'm loving the Star Trek one. Oh. Thank you. Yeah, so yeah, am I, John. Too. You're doing a great job on ABCDTOS. Oh, it's it's a ton of fun, and I'm I'm looking forward to man, so much left to go, and I'm looking forward to all of it. So yeah, thanks a lot for listening, everybody. While we're singing John's praises, I also just want to say publicly that your lobby cards have been fantastic with the guests on them. I really, <laughs> I look forward every week to seeing what you're going to come up with. I think they've been really great. Oh. It's been fun to put those together. It's pretty easy. Once I set the template, it's been very easy to put them together every week, but it's fun Just to like making James right Bond image. films. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All, All right. Well, well I, we're going to be taking a little hiatus after this. We're not sure when we'll be back, but we'll be doing some one-offs and Patreons and all sorts of other good stuff in between now and the beginning of From Russia With Love. And yeah, we've been definitely. already talking to some really interesting people that are going to be joining us in that conversation. Yeah, definitely don't jump off the Patreon. I think we'll still be doing a monthly show on there. 
Uh, maybe maybe two here and there. But yeah, definitely don't jump off there. I think we got some good stuff. More Connery talk. Maybe a quadfecta coming up. More commentaries. So just stick with us on that. And um, yeah, thanks for listening for this season. And uh, we'll see you next time for 007 by 7 James Bond will return. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs>